Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the honor of speaking with Rian Wilkinson. Rian was a professional player who was a member for 13 years of the Canadian women's national soccer team. In March of 2014, she became just the third female soccer player to ever appear in 150 games for Canada. As a member of the national team, she won a bronze medal at the London Olympic Games and has further competed at four World Cups and two other Olympic Games. After her retirement in 2017 for an encore, Rian Ran a marathon and crewed a 35-foot yacht in the Mediterranean Sea. Since retirement, she has now ventured into the world of coaching and acts as an assistant with the women's national team. I've invited Rian on Leave Your Mark because of her dedication as an athlete and an ambassador of women's sport. She has become been a pioneer and a builder in the creation of the sport of soccer in Canada, and she has only begun to build what I am certain will become a significant legacy. Welcome, Rian. Thank you very much. Thanks for the intro. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Uh, um, I have different connections with different people that I do this uh, with. And yours was, a, I think we talked about a long time ago, a very distinct connection with the fact that your dad taught me uh, in university <laughs> in recreational sport. And I didn't actually even make the connection between the names until uh, we started chatting one time. But I know your dad was a really big rugby player. Why did you choose soccer over rugby? You know, I've asked my parents, I have a twin sister and an older brother, and they put me in soccer first on my own. And so um, they never answer me, but I can guess I was highly irritating and too much energy. Um, but they were, they were fans of all sport. We all played rugby. We all ended up playing soccer, tennis, swimming all summer. Uh, we lived in Wales for a while and horseback riding and, and running. Like we... We were just outdoorsy kids who, who like to to do sport, and they let us choose what we were interested in, which I've always appreciated. That's awesome. Um, your parents moved over from England, Wales. Um, how old were they when they moved to North America? They were in their mid-20s, and then they sort of went back and forth. I think they came for an experience to Canada and then kept changing their minds, going back and forth, and had us while dad was working for Canadian rugby and then actually moved us back to Wales for a while and then realized, nope, it's going to be Canada. So that was the final move. So permanently in Canada uh, from 1992 onwards. Yeah. Okay. And so you uh, grew up in the West Island of Montreal, right? Is that, that where you were? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. What kind, when you got into soccer, when did you know that soccer was sort of something you were more than connected to in the sense that it was going to be bigger than just a sport, you, one of the sports that you played? 
you know, it's been really hard to, I've been asked that question and to pinpoint it, it's been really challenging. I was part of a very fortunate generation that opportunities just kept coming up where if you had been five years older than me, you wouldn't have got them. Mm. So I didn't realize it. I never thought there was opportunity and they just kept showing up. So scholarship to a U.S. university, I had played well for my provincial side and got some offers. I'm like, well, let's do that. And then, then I got an offer to go play abroad after I graduated. And I had, you know, I was about to start my master's degree at the University of Ottawa. I had different plans. And my goodness, this is an opportunity. So I kept following these opportunities because I loved it. And mm-hmm. so to, to be honest, I didn't realize that this was going to be bigger until until I was well onto the national team because mm. my first few years there, I was really, <laughs> I wasn't ready. I was there to be a practice player and to push the the real stars of the team. And I was absolutely fine with that. And, and then I just started to, to catch up and get better. So it was probably a few years into my national team career when I was like, wow, this is, this is it. I'm doing this and I'm going to possibly be an Olympian and go to world cup. So that was, that's, Kind of crazy. So, so in a way you weren't, you weren't so much that you aspired to be in the national team. It sort of just kind of happened in a, in a weird and sort of windy way. In a way that only someone of my age group could possibly have wow. happened to them. I wanted to be an Olympian. I remember an Olympian went to my pool once in Bedurfe and my brother said that guy was an Olympian. And I just, you know, he, he had a big gut. He was totally overweight. He just, you know, belly flopped into the pool and I was in awe, <laughs> you know, like that guy went to the Olympics. So like if anything, my dream was to be an Olympian and, and soccer was a conduit to that to start for sure. What do you think you would have done if you had not become an Olympian and a soccer player? I think probably I would have become a teacher. Both my parents were, were professors at uh, Concordia and at uh, John Abbott. So I, I always loved teaching, so that was definitely something I was I was following. Mm-hmm. Your parents are divorced, and you come from a family that's kind of re, reinvented itself. Your mom got remarried. How did that affect your growing up? Was it uh, a tough thing? Was it a good thing? Was it how? What were the challenges in that for you? Well, it's always fun to look back as an adult. You know, <laughs> when you're in that those those moments, uh, you know, as an adult, you say, look, no one needs to be in a loveless relationship. And, and they weren't, my parents love each other and loved each other. And it just didn't work out for them. But I had, a, an incredible upbringing with two parents that were completely involved in, in my life. Their, their separation and then divorce was obviously quite uh, traumatic, which it would be for, for anyone, but both of them have gone on to, to marry wonderful people. Um, who have only added to my life. And I look at my nieces and nephews and they've got, you know, I don't know, six grandparents. I'm like, well, it's just more love to give out, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. How do you like being an aunt? I love it. I actually stereotypically live with my twin sister. She lives in the house upstairs. So we have a, a two, one home, two houses. And so I spend a lot of time with, with her two boys and my brother has three and my stepsister has one. And, and it's, it's honestly the, the highlight is spending time with these guys. I gotta, I gotta know what the story is behind your brother's Z uh, lettered kids names, <laughs> or is there a story? <laughs> figure it out let me know (laughs) his name's zara and my twin sister is sarah so i just it just anyway i'm staying out of that but uh. (laughs) 
So you go down to, uh, is it Tennessee to go for, to university and play? Mm. Was that um, a challenging experience? Was, what was the growth in going to university in the States and, and sort of experiencing NCAA big time sport, so to speak? Yeah, that was really, really hard. It was the first time I'd really been apart from my family. We were very, very close and um, they supported me to, to be, you know, truthful. It, it was challenging. You know, it sounds like a great idea until it's, it happens. You're like, oh, well, I've made a mistake. And um, it was a wonderful experience in many ways. And in others, I was going to the Bible Belt of the south of the United States during the Bush-Al Gore um, election. So, and, you know, 2000, and, and you know, September 11th happened while I was there. Mm. So there was a lot of big changes going on in the world while I was there. And it helped me probably form my own opinion and strong opinions on things because I was in an environment where... I had to hold my own because I wasn't always the majority. So Mm -hmm. in soccer ways, it it, it helped me grow a great deal, but also just as a person, that experience definitely cemented who I am today. Did you play with a lot of uh, American girls at that school? So you were like one of a few Canadians or? There were two Canadians and we were the first internationals that had ever gone. So it was all Americans um, a lot of them from uh, the southern U.S. and then these two Canadians, one from Trois-Rivières, Quebec, who also went on to play um, in, in the Olympics and World Cups with me. So we were a little bit fish out of water for a while there. Yeah, well, tell me about that. It's, um, you know, your biggest, one of the biggest rivals in female soccer, especially for Canadian soccer, is the U.S. national team. And now you had this opportunity to go and play in an American school. What what do you see as the differences between uh, a female Canadian soccer player and a female American soccer player? Um, you know, just the financial realities were really shocking to me. I, I showed up there and in no way did I have a rough upbringing. I brought Bader, Faye, Quebec. My parents were teachers. Um, I had everything I needed, but I didn't have excesses. Our family holidays were canoe trips, uh, which I loved, but you know, there wasn't extra cash. So if you had a pair of boots, you polish them and you took care of them. Um, so old school, but you have to understand my dad was a boarding school boy and a military boy. So yeah, we were literally polishing our boots. And then I show up at university and they gave me a hockey bag of stuff, stuff I did not need. Um, you know, and, and then I sort of complained that the boots were too tight. So they gave me three other kinds that were all different just to see. And then I said, well, what do I do with the others? They're like, oh, I'll just keep them. So I had four pairs of boots on the first day where I, so <laughs> it, it's just a small reality check that if you grow up in an environment where just things are just given to you for free, um, you maybe don't have the same appreciation for what you do get and maybe missing part of the resilience that you just got to make it work, that things aren't always going to be easy. You might have to tape your boots. Like we have, we have people showing up for national training camps with tape boots. And it's, I see that as a badge of honor. Like these, a lot of our our players in Canada don't have it easy and, and they show up and they will fight for anything. And that is our characteristic that we're most proud of for in Canadian soccer. 
Well, it's interesting you take it there because I'd really love your opinion as an athlete. I've been talking to a few different performance professionals and one of the conversations we got into was the juxtaposition between having, you know, giving an athlete or a team or a group everything they need to succeed in essence and and to some degree not withholding, but at the same time that, that need to sometimes overcome. And as an athlete, do you see that need to overcome as a real value proposition in your growth and development and almost a necessary evil in order to be successful? The eternal balance. And absolutely, I look at every challenge I had, every rejection I received and know that that was a catalyst for major successes for me. Um, And then what we're trying to achieve with... um, with our youth setup in soccer, I'm speaking about soccer right now, trying to make sure that pathway is so clear and that you do this and then you do that and you graduate through. And, you know, when I talk to the parents, I say very few of our athletes are going to take this pathway and majority will create their own. They'll get cut from a team. They won't be good enough one year. And then how will they react to decisions? And it's the girls or the young boys or girls that decide to prove their coach is wrong and not in a negative way, but just that fire is stoked that, that make it the furthest in my opinion. So yeah, there is a problem with giving too much, but then you also need to give them opportunities. So it is trying to find that balance that they find that fire within themselves and that they have every opportunity given to them to succeed. Tell me about um, an example of, of something that didn't work out that really in your way. And when you look back, it was, uh, a watershed moment for you uh, in your growth? Um, well, I, so I have an individual one and then a team one mm-hmm. and the individual, I never made a youth national team. I, I actually made a provincial team one year and the coach said to me, you've only made this team on character. And I'm telling you that because I want you to bring that energy to the group. And so I was like, well, okay. So I'm the last person to make the team and ended up being a starter for that team so that was and it wasn't that one wasn't about proving the coach wrong it was just you haven't seen me because in Canada you train you used to train in a gymnasium all winter so a very tiny area that was you know pretty much futsal and I did not excel at futsal but if you got me on a field where I could use my pace and you know I came alive so those little moments where I was just like you just wait you just wait, I'll prove you wrong. And, and, you know, the people that were better than you slowly recognizing that you were catching up to them. So that's the story of my career, just not making youth teams and just fine. That's it. I go a different way. And, you know, I moved to Europe and took every opportunity I was given and not because I had a grand plan, but just because I kept wanting to improve myself. And that just kept elevating the level I was playing at. And the bigger one, I would say, is a team one. And that was in um, 2011. We we came last at the World Cup in Germany. And it was humiliating. And it was embarrassing. And we made the biggest mistake an athlete can make. The whole team, I would say, pointed the finger at different people for different reasons. And an escape mechanism for when things go poorly and then you just can't handle taking that on board. And until we accepted our own responsibility, we couldn't move forward. And we had a head coach come in, John Herdman, who, 
who gave us that opportunity to choose to turn the finger onto ourselves and that ownership and self-awareness and self-criticism with a positive slant is why we won our first Olympic bronze in London. Mm-hmm. Um, that was 11 months after our heartbreak in Germany and with the exact same team. So dead last at a world cup to third in an Olympic games, all because we took ownership of ourselves Like you're going to have bad coaches. You're going to have bad moments. How do you react? And that was such a small lesson that we had to live through in order to succeed. Did you, um, I'm going to come back to that in a bit uh, because I want to learn about your experiences with John before I get there though. uh, Your dad was a coach at a pretty high level rugby and played pretty high level rugby. In your career, did you used to have a lot of, or still have lots of conversations with your dad about coaching, about, you know, decision-making your career, things like that? Or did you, he sort of stay out of, out of your, that box with you? No, he was fully in. Um, I know he, he regrets a lot of the, the drives home. Now there's been these big, this big push, like how do you drive home with your, (laughs) (laughs) I, I feel, listen, my father was, was amazing support for me. He used to drive me to the South shore every day after school. I used to take the, the 305 train from downtown back home, do my homework on the train. He'd pick me up from the train station and then um, drive me home so I could change clothes, have some food, and then drive me to the South Shore for training and the drive. Like, talk about, it was resilience for me, but my goodness, my poor parents. Like, um, yeah, no, he was, he was pretty good. I don't remember being really annoyed with him he did do a lot of visualization with me which I did not take to mm-hmm. and I did listen to your podcast with Jen Heil how she had this advanced you know training with her parents and so Harry my dad he tried really hard I was just not having it and um so we tried to visualize and I would just ignore him and the rest was kind of a breakdown of the game and what he thought I could have improved in and where I thought I did well. So it wasn't criticism, which I always appreciated. It was all more about that growth mindset without recognizing it. Mm. Um, So yeah, I I valued those. And I think I only yelled at him once from the field and we had a a quick, sharp discussion about it post game about, uh, (laughs) about how to deal with things like that in a more, um, civilized manner that was one. <laughs> so when you look back in your your life and your relationships with your parents what are the greatest gifts that they give you gave you in a sense oh good lord um they we're very three very different children that they had my brother is academically very gifted my sister is also academically and athletically gifted and then there was me so there was this <laughs> And they gave us, they made us do both. So I was expected to do well in school, but well for me. Mm. And it's very easy, especially with twins to use comparison. Your sister isn't struggling, you know, and, and they never did that. We were our own people and they were advocates for me in school. So I really struggled. Um, my mother decided to hold me back from in grade four. So my twin sister went on and I repeated grade four because my mom wanted me to which was tough. Um, but they, they were real advocates. They were an immigrant family and they fought to get me into the English system because I learned differently. And I went on to be the valedictorian of my high school because of her and my father supporting me through my academic career. And also a teacher telling me just cause you're not as smart as your brother and sister academically doesn't mean you're not an academic. 
such a simple statement and it changed my life. Um, and the same for my brother and sister. They had, they had me excelling and getting a lot of plaudits in sport. And so they kind of stopped being interested and my parents wouldn't let them. And they're still healthy, active adults who have healthy, active children as a result. So I think that's what my parents did well. They, they raised their individual child, not, not us as a, as a group. That's awesome. Um, who were your inspiration athletes as you were uh, coming up the pipe? I was actually just having a conversation with Kenneth, who's the new head coach for the Canadian team. And I didn't know anything about the Canadian female soccer players. I just had no information. So I did have a poster of Mia Hamm on my wall um, and Ryan Giggs. So I had these, these two. Um, and I had a lot of rugby inspirations um, just because my father used to bring the three of us to the, to Ecole Saint-Georges and Saint-Anne de Bellevue. And we used to watch them train. And I used to see like Jillian Florence and these phenomenal athletes training. And, um, you know, I didn't know their stories, but I saw women at the top of their game training and working hard and getting no recognition and not caring. And one of the guys like just getting their elbows in there. And I would say those real life people were my inspirations, just watching them uh, do their thing for sure. Mm. So did you ever meet Mia Hamm after having a poster of hers? <laughs> well, my first, my first cap was against the U.S. I think we lost 6 nothing or like 6-2, something pretty bad. And uh, I think I fouled her and got a yellow card. So <laughs> I, I was joking with my mom afterwards. She had a Sharpie in my sock while she was doing it. <laughs> so I never, I never really got to know her very well, but she was friends with my university coach as well. So I could see her a bit, but I didn't tell her her posters. I didn't tell my national teammates either. Let me tell you that. <laughs> so what are the, what are your strengths, uh, inner strengths that, that have allowed you to, to accomplish what you've accomplished? Cause it sounds like listening to you, um, you have a sense that you, you were, it wasn't talent that got you where you got you. It was your, your resilience in some sense, where does that come from? And, and, and how do you find that in yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not, I'm a, I think I'm a gifted athlete. Um, I'm not an, I was not an overly talented soccer player, but I had a fierceness in me, I would say, and people call it passion or drive, whatever you want to call it. But I just, I just went for it and I could take criticism. Um, and I, I love the game. Yeah. What do you love about the game? Tell me what you love about the game. Well, firstly, the camaraderie, the the team itself, the team environment. I don't know how in, individual athletes do it. I really don't. The, the group around you that support you through those hard times but are there to celebrate these incredible highs of sport, um, the, the game itself, that individual battle within a bigger chess match, the trying to outsmart the opposition, outwork, outlast – um, it's, it's a one-on-one -on -one contest within a chess match within, you know, there's all these, these parts to soccer that, um, that I've, that I fell in love with gradually. It was not a passion from day one. It was an interest and it grew and grew as, as I became more invested in, in my team as well as the game. Hmm. Who have been sort of teammates that you've had that, um, you, you took inspiration from or helped you grow as a, as a player? And why? Well, you know, Christine Sinclair 
is I'm a year older than her. Um, she was on the national team before I got there. And so I, I said that I wasn't a talented soccer player, but I had a resilience, a drive and a fierceness that got me through the, through the levels. And then I look at someone like Christine. So she was born with a gift. She's just a gifted soccer player, but her drive is unrivaled. And I think there are very few athletes that combine those and only the great, I'm talking Wayne Gretzky, you know, these are supreme athletes who, who have both. And so watching her, because if you're that talented, you could take shortcuts and a lot of athletes do, but she never did. So I, I used her as a wonderful example of someone who set the tone. And if you're captain, you're, you know, Canada's one of Canada's greatest athletes is working that hard. What excuse do you have? I say, I look at my young 16 year olds that are, you know, complaining that we're doing a bit of fitness. And I was like, you don't, you don't, if you're complaining now, you're not going to do it. You're not going to get there. You've got to embrace this, the struggle because it's not, if you, you want to be an athlete, this is part of it and mm. it'll be done. But yeah, having her lead the charge and then players like Diana Madison, Aaron McLeod, Sophie Schmidt, like we have incredibly talented athletes who've given so much to Canada that have a combination that I think is quite rare. I don't see it often. And we have a number of them who play for Canada. What do you think are the sort of some of the key performance elements to, to, to an athlete's success? I was talking to Don Gauthier, who I know you know very well as Jen's husband. And, um, you know, he, he was telling a story about his, his youth and, and then he sort of segued into his belief that, you know, you need to want to get out of bed every day and do what you do. It's got to be like something that it, it, there's a fire in you that is ignited every day to do that. And if you don't have that, you're probably not going to have great success. As an example, what are some of the things for you that you think are just innately necessary to be at the level that you've, you've played soccer at? Well, you're not getting out of bed for anything without a very clear vision for what you want to do or be. And that was that's probably the difference with between hamster wheel and jumping up and being like let's get after this today and that's that real clarity on end goal and that isn't always individual um it's usually much bigger than yourself the team it's it's something that that will affect real change that's what i've found so if you're able to take yourself out remove your team if you're in a team sport and look at what am I trying to achieve here mm. um, that's that's what lights the fire and that lasting fire not the momentary spark that you can you can be motivated after watching a film or a public speaker for a day a week but what's going to last and and that's what I think is key that real clarity and I'm not talking about the quote on the wall that people have you know unless you've put it there as a group. And that's what you're aiming at. Um, because otherwise you get lost and, and it, it's always going to waver. That's because we're human, but as long as you're able to pull it back, um, through real clarity of, of vision of where you're going. Would you say you're more connected? I mean, you mentioned the team versus individual thing. Would you say you're more, have been more connected in your life to 
being a part of a team goal or a, a team success than your own personal success or your own personal goals in some sense? Absolutely. My mm. personal goals were always to just make sure I was within the team that was going for, for something bigger. That's all mm. I've, I've always connected with team sports. And so for me, that global vision is how I see vision. So even now when I'm coaching and possibly should be more of an individual, I always want it to be this group um, effort and group um, idea for, for most things I do, because it's, it's how I've conditioned myself to think. Mm -hmm. You've, you've had quite a few. I mean, one of the reasons I, I know you is because of some of the injuries that you were dealing with, but you've dealt with a few in your life. Um, how did those shape you when you had to deal with uh, pain and suffering to a degree, uh, trying to get back to the game you loved? Well, injuries are part of sport. And I'll just take it a different way for a second because it was really important for me to, to meet you and Jamie and, and B210 and that kind of group because I've, I met people that were so giving of their time and energy and expertise. Mm. And I hadn't retired, obviously. I was still playing. And I was, but I was starting to think about retirement. I was nervous about it. And it gave me the first glimpse into the world of athletics and the people that surround athletics in general are top people who are so willing to give you a hand. And that's what started with these injuries is like people coming out, reaching out, helping me wherever I was in the world in order to help me perform. Mm. And I, I thought that was the most incredible thing because you weren't working with the soccer team. You were just working with me to help me be better. And yeah. And I've actually carried that over into retirement is I, I reach out, I ask people and it's been really a gift that I learned in the last few years is if you're, if you need help, you've got to ask the worst mm -hmm. is they say, no, the best is that quality people come into your life. Um, so the injury had a lot of side effects in terms of, you know, ideas and people I've met. Um, but they're part of part of the sport. And what I learned is that for two years, I actually had to take off from playing professionally. So I had to train on my own. And I already knew I was quite a driven, um, hardworking person. But without the training environment, you're always going to be a little bit slower when you get into national team camp. So I had to like find ways. I was training with men's teams. I just found at the park, you know, like getting in there. Um, you know, working with Whitecaps, working with Ontario, anywhere I asked and I went and trained with them to, to make sure that I was primed and ready to go. Um, so th those injuries just gave me the last little focus I needed for the back end of my career. I, I really wanted to, to end with the Olympic Games in 2016 uh, with another bronze medal. I wanted a gold, but I ended with a medal and uh, what a wonderful way to bow out after, you know, and playing with no pain that last year. Mm. I did limp over that finish line. I was ready to go. And I, I went into my retirement fully healthy and, you know, training every day still because I just love it. Let's talk about that for a second. Did you have any reflective moments of darkness when you felt like maybe you wouldn't be able to go out on your terms? Um, and then, you know, segue to that. I'd love to hear how you made the decision that it was time to leave the game. But uh, first, uh, uh, the heavy heart part, if there's there, if it was there. Well, dark days. Oh, yeah, there's dark days. Um, 
Yeah, there's, those are open conversations that you have with people. And so I, you know, I, I'm fortunate to have had many incredible coaches along the way. And, and one of them was, was John Herdman. And, you know, when I wasn't starting and when I was slowly getting replaced by our wonderful players coming up through the ranks, I had those conversations with him. And I, I, I believe one of my qualities is I am quite self-aware. Hmm. So as long as I believed that the right person was on the field, I had no problem with it. But when I felt like actually there's some gray area there, I had the conversation with John and um, they were, they were hard conversations and, and very emotional and just finding my place on a team where you're not starting anymore. So a lot of athletes call it a day because they can't handle being like one of the top dogs t- to in the end of your career ending as like a leader. <laughs> um, but I, I really, it was, I'm so glad I did. 2016 was almost a handing of the torch for me. I, I did play three of the six games, um, but my greatest contribution was, I believe, my experience and guiding these young people, leading, um, like just just being that support system for them. Because I can only imagine being a young person coming on, taking someone else's position and then getting feeling so uncomfortable off the field. And we create an environment around that team where it is the coach's decision who starts and everyone else will hundred percent be behind you and ready to contribute when ready. So mm-hmm. yeah, I love how it ended because it really was a, wow, look at these, look at these young people and look where they're going to take the team now. Mm. Talk about John for a little bit. What was his, uh, what did you learn from him? Uh, what, how did he reignite the fire of, of the game for you? Cause I know that was a real seminal moment for the team and for you, you meant, you mentioned it earlier too. Yeah, well, he's the one who gave us real clarity of vision. And, you know, everyone says we want to win. We said that in Germany. We're going to win it. Well, like, okay. Um, So what he did was we started, again, pointing that finger back at us. What hadn't we done? So the first thing he did was sort of establish high-performance athletes and lifestyle and had us do that. So we committed to to how we were going to live. Cause why not go for it? It was a, why not? And if we do it, we will change soccer in Canada and create legacy. And that word's been used a lot since, cause I think it actually could took some momentum, but it was quite new when John brought that up legacy, we can actually shift everything about women's soccer. We are the only country in the world who have a women's team that's on par with our men's team in terms of people knowing our names, supporting us, you could say the U.S., but I would argue that the men's team sort of the women led them, and then the men like everyone's like, "Oh, look at our men now." We'll see after not qualifying for the World Cup what happens over there. <laughs> what we could do, and this clarity of vision, and and he taught us. So there's always a leadership group in teams. Like I think it's this innovation that happened 20 years ago that people are still bringing in, and and I. I I was part of the leadership group for years and it just meant you sat with the coach and they sort of talked to you and then they hoped that you dribbled it down to the rest of the team. But we didn't know what we were doing. We were just there through experience, through character, you know, whatever the criteria was at the time. But he actually gave us lessons in leadership, Mm. uh, lessons in 
in conversation and speaking. And so I thought that was incredible because I'm not a leader like Christine Sinclair, like Diana Matheson, definitely not like Karina LeBlanc, who's this, you know, huge fireball that no one can keep up with. So why are we all trying to do the same thing? Leadership started looking different and I love that. So he went towards even the details of, of how to be a leader and then those tough conversations that you have to have with your teammates as a leader. It shouldn't always come from the coach. If you don't think your teammates performing, why can't I say it? And then her say it back and have that conversation in a respectful manner that leads to growth. And that can only happen if trust exists. So we had to set trust. We had like everything started from, from this real clarity of, of legacy as a vision. And it, it just sort of trickled down from there and how we lived our lives and behaved. So what has become your leadership style from that growth period? Well, evolving mm-hmm. and constantly. So we have a new head coach, Kenneth um, Heiner Müller, I believe, who knows these things. <laughs> They're lots. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, he's very different than John, but I have watched him and I, I really like a lot of what he's doing. So I've sort of absorbed a bunch of that. So I think my leadership style is to be very clear on my, what my goal is and my vision and be able to express that and make sure everyone feels connected to it. And if they don't, we've got to reevaluate Um, But also evolving. I'm not a finished product. I have not figured out my leadership style perfectly. And and that's what I'm trying to do now to make sure that that at some point takes more of a a set form. (laughs) So how are you shifting gears from creating success in yourself that's predominantly physical? uh, It's a physical delivery model of what you do to what has become probably more language and uh, how you carry yourself and the things that you do. Has that been a challenge for you? Is it an interesting challenge for you? What's going on there for you? It hasn't been too much of a challenge because I was always a little bit um, like coach-like Mm. how I, I like I, I always enjoyed teaching so when young players came up that was something I really enjoyed was going into the grow room where we have all our laptops and all our practices on it so you can review your footage and sort of break it down within units if you'd like your decision that's something I always enjoyed so it hasn't been a huge shift mm. but the that competitiveness that when you need to turn the dial to calm instead of maybe on the field, you'd turn it maybe a little more to like, yeah, this is the, the the fire, the engine we need to to push on. You can't do that as a coach. And so that's the dial I've been trying to, I've got to learn how to just be that, the calm, relaxing influence on the sidelines if people are sort of getting into the excessive energy and sort of anger zone on the field. I'm the one that's got to calm down. And I haven't always mastered that, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> a work in progress as one would say <laughs> is that a, a, is it your aspiration to go on to 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 being a head coach to is coaching in you so to speak yeah I never wanted to be a coach people would ask me I said no not a chance um hmm. 
and then I was given opportunities by John um, to sort of, it, he called it EPEC, elite player, elite coach. So to give this sort of mentorship job almost. So you, you help out in administration, you do managerial work, you do, co- so just this huge experience that's sort of unloaded on you for a year um, or two, depending on, so John left in the middle of my EPEC mentorship Um, But what happened during it was I discovered coaching is teaching (laughs) (laughs) and there are elements of coaching I'll never love, but I have mastered them so that I can do it and then give it to someone else and know what I'm giving them. (laughs) Um, But the stuff on the field, the communication with the players, um, the improvement in them, watching it and being a part of it, I've, I've really fallen in love with that. So what was pretty much just a really cool experience that I thought, yeah, I should do this because I'll come out better no matter what has definitely opened my eyes to this being a, a very real possibility for my future. Cool. What are a couple of uh, key performance habits that you kind of ascribe to that really keep you dialed into your forward progress in life? As an athlete, I had a quote that just was no shortcuts on my wall. And that was pretty much how I was an athlete and how I progressed was, you know, work harder than you and I'm going to do more than you. And so when I run fitness and this was actually something my coach at the time at Tennessee who's now in Texas, Angela Kelly, who's Canadian, she said, always start with your foot behind the line. And, and it still drives me nuts if someone's got their foot over the line. And she said, you'll always have, you can complain about that person who's cheating, but they're cheating themselves because you'll always have those couple of inches of extra work that you did. And that's become my mantra. So even when I was training for national team stuff, if I said I was going to run for 45 minutes and I came back at 43, I ran for two extra minutes. So I never lied to myself. I felt, I think that really helped me with my mental strength is I just made it impossible. If I've said before I left that I was doing this and I was doing this and it just was fact. Um, And that's sort of what I've carried over into the, the coaching world. If, if I'm saying I'm doing this, then I'm doing this and I'm doing it to the best of my ability and just, no shortcuts. I'll do it right if I know how, and if I don't, I'll ask for help. And yeah, just carrying that through, I would guess. Mm. That's a perfect segue from another part of my podcast that I do, which is I discovered a book a number of years ago that uh, essentially told me what my purpose was, which I already sort of was attached to, but it's uh, called The Day You Were Born, and it combines numerology with astrology. So uh, you are a Taurus three. And your purpose is to believe in yourself and take your place as a leader, never losing touch with your sense of humbleness, which comes with the acceptance of fate. There's no great genius without some touch of madness. The Taurus three has her own laws and God help anyone who interferes. When talented, no one can touch them. Excessiveness can be exhibited since Jupiter tends to enlarge, expand or support whatever it encounters. There you go. <laughs> really related to the touch of madness. <laughs> <laughs> on the edge, on the edge. <laughs> so as you look uh, forward, um, what are some of the things you aspire to do with this? I mean, look backward and look forward at one point. You mentioned earlier how when you were growing up, 
um, you know, maybe the previous generation didn't have as much of an opportunity in women's soccer. And then you were part of this generation that, that really in some sense had a gift of, of where women's soccer was going to be. And now there's that legacy you talked about earlier. So what, how does that all feel to have been a part of that? And now looking forward, do you look forward with real positivity? Uh, how, how does that all come together for you? Yeah, no, I, I won the lottery of when I played the game, the, the women who came before paved the way and got none of the, none of the spoils for the work they did, but I played with them. So I learned under them and I am friends with them. And um, they retired and these young players came through and, you know, the things I fought for are normal for them. They get paid, you know, a living wage. They are treated professionally, the environment, the equipment, the people that surround them. Um, So I bridged this incredible gap with these women who just, fought for everything, like fought for a shirt that didn't go to their ankles, like those women. And then the ones that are playing in Europe and getting paid money that will set them up for life if they treat it properly. Mm. And I'm right in the middle of being like, wow, look what we created. And then looking forward and being like, my gosh, they just did the exact same work I did and never got any of the attention. Mm. Um, so I'm so lucky because I think that I've been able to appreciate everything, everything that we got, I'm able to appreciate. Um, what I'm nervous about for the future is that while the women become more and more professional and club becomes more and more important payment, like actual living wages that they can save and use once they retire, as money comes into anything, things get more muddied. And the purity of the national team, which is something I value so highly that just like, gosh, what a privilege to play for your country. I, I, I did do it for free and I would have continued. I just, it's such a beautiful thing and that gets lost when money is involved. Mm. And right now we still have a wonderful group. And I think part of it is because the Christines are still there. The Diana's like that, that, that original group McLeod's that they're still there and reminding them. But when they go, I do have this, this fear that, that, complacency creeps in and they they lose touch of where the game was and how far it's come um but you know we said legacy and our legacy is that uh, this game has changed for the better in so many ways so um that's just a, a fight for a future day probably i know you have an interest in because i am a girl and and so, you know when you look at women's sports and being a part of maybe um, a period of time where when you look at the WNBA, when you look at what's going on with women's soccer, with women's tennis, I mean, there is a, it's not where it should be, but it is certainly moving to where it should be in some sense. Is there a pridefulness in you f- for that or a sense of accomplishment? And how do you, how do you feel about all of that? I'm still not happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's why I asked the question. <laughs> I think it is. It's it's come so far, but I just don't want to be the person who's like, look how far. You know, I I it just came out again. Causes stats on the four percent of all media coverage is female, and I think of my poster of Mia Hamm. How many posters can I still find of Christine Sinclair? I just can't find them, and I, I think mm-hmm. we we work so hard now to make sure that our females are 
competing. We know they shouldn't be specializing too young. We, they should just be outside and exercising. And if they're Irish dancing, that's a sport. And if they're skipping rope, that's a sport. Like, let's open up our pathways. And then I think, well, if you can't see an example of where your sport leads, then as soon as there's any trouble, schools in the way, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever it is, you're going to stop. So I, I do think at the, it's got to be a, a sandwich thing. I brought this up the other day. I was kind of talking to Jen Hall about it. And I, I believe very strongly in it that soccer has to lead the way because we're the most visible at this point, not because we're better than golf or anything like, gosh, Henderson's doing a wonderful job. I just, I just think we got to keep pushing so that it's seen and that our young boys and our young girls, it's a norm and not like, Oh, look, women's like I just think we still have so far to go and I don't want to pat us on the back because we're just scratching the surface of what's a, a cultural change and that takes a massive amount of time so let's get it going <laughs> that's great you gotta have that or it will it will the legacy that you created will die if you don't keep stoking the fire for sure but that being said I mean when you when you do look at the health of women's soccer based on what that success at the Olympics and things, has it springboarded? Has it pushed more? Are you seeing a difference in the number of girls that are interested in soccer now? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the the talent level is staggering. I mean, I just went to a BC Rex game last night just to watch our young people play. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's really exciting. Um, and a lot of them will have been prime age in 2016. And the girls that were now are now on the national team a lot of them will say 2012 is what inspired them. So you can't underestimate these big tournaments and the, and just being involved and seeing, uh, seeing examples of where they can be if they, they keep driving. Cool. Well, my um, final question for you is kind of uh, a little bit of a f- forward thinking analysis of you after you leave this wonderful world, hopefully not for many, many years, but what do you want to be remembered by? Or what do you want people to say about you when you've passed from this earth? Jen, uh, Jen told me she hates this question. So yeah. that's, that's good. <laughs> well, I think, you know, everyone wants to be remembered and I, I hope I'm, I hope I'm remembered as a genuine and fierce. I hope I keep that fierceness and, and, genuineness in me that I'm trusted and I speak my mind, but I'm, I'm loving and kind. And, you know, that my nephews and nieces that I play a role in their lives, that I'm hugely a part of my family, like everything you just want to, you want to just have done the best you can when you, whenever your time comes and that, uh, yeah, I hope I've done my best. Cool. Well, it's not known as fierceness anymore. It's madness. listen thanks for taking the time it's been wonderful to chat with you and learn more about the the life that you've lived so uh, keep living it and keep making uh, making women's sports and and sports in general something that we all stay connected to thanks very much it's been awesome thank you Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. 
Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>